Mic check. Mic check one, two. Mic check one, two, one, two. <laughs> Welcome to Sword Dad Pool. <laughs> Whip on my Kindle, I'm ready for a break. I start to water because the words are a mace. Iris burning up, no blue light filter. Dizzy all of a sudden, my balance off kilter. I just bought a bunny and I named him Regret. Tummy can't handle Swiss, so I feed him the cheddar. News just in. Rami's not cool, so I ate the newspaper. Ink bled through my stool. Tripped onto paper, formed into questions. Poisoned veins and prevented erections. Made a weird joke, my friends don't get it. Some in the scapegoats, they're the ones that said it. Working on the subway laptop, ate my soul. Cloud ate my data. Story tadpole. Story tadpole, story tadpole, story tadpole. Welcome to Story Tadpole. This week's story is dedicated to the migrant workers of California. Selma hated peeling bananas. She hated bananas. She hated yellow. Bananas had ruined it. This past June, she'd eaten nothing but bananas for the entire month. It was all she could afford with her meager wage, and she had children to feed. She got the bananas for free because she picked them for a living. Well, actually, they weren't technically free. She stole them, and the thieving was easy, at least for a while. She'd roll them in her skirt when no one was looking, and then letting her long sweater fall past her waist, she'd continue working. To keep the bananas in place, she'd have to hunch, which hurt her back, but it was a small price to pay for keeping her children fed. Every so often, the added weight would start to make her skirt drag on the ground, so she'd have to hoist the stolen goods back up, temporarily revealing their outlines. Still, Hidden in the waistband of her skirt, the ring of bananas could pass as a bulky belt, at least to someone who didn't care to look twice. However, Duran Watson was the type of woman who did look twice. Why, Duran thought, would Selma be wearing such an absurdly large belt? Surely there were cheaper, more practical options. In fact, Duran had a spare belt, one that was much smaller and probably much lighter. Duran Watson was also the type of person who offered what she could. During lunch, she would talk to Selma, offer her the belt. Maybe it would make the woman's day, make both of their days. A smile within these endless rows was a precious gift, one that on this day, Duran could give. But as she approached Selma, the woman slipped her hand beneath the sweater and jostling for a moment or two, eyes darting side to side, she rearranged a fruit that had been placed awkwardly. And when she did so, a small patch of greenish-yellow peel was revealed. Such a texture was unmistakable to any that worked the fields. Theft was the only explanation. Selma was stealing from the company. 
Duran Watson was blessed with a good heart, but each drop of kindness within her was matched twofold by fear. What if the company finds out someone is stealing, she thought. What if they find out that I knew? Her eyes widened. Panic swelled in her throat and unable to contain it, she screeched. Her finger was raised in the air and it was pointing at Selma. Guards came from nowhere, big muscled men with reflective sunglasses and guns slung over their shoulders. They caught Selma's wrist, all of them at the same time. It was five men against one woman. Each held a part of her wrist. Expressionless, they nodded to each other, and then, still in perfect unison, they twisted and yanked. Selma's wrist shattered like a glass figurine. The banana fell from her useless fingers. The guards turned sideways, and then letting their boots extend inward toward the fallen fruit, they jived and mashed, kicked and stomped at the poor fruit until it was a brown puddle. Then the biggest and baddest of them all, a man whose head rose seven feet from the ground and whose body weighed 300 pounds, shackled her mangled hand to her good one and dragged her through a door with a sign on it that read, No one ever comes back from here, in big blocky letters covered with golden paint. Selma had four children and no husband. The oldest child was named Maya, and she took care of her siblings while their mother worked. They lived in a shack with a tin roof a mile away from the banana fields. The inside, though cramped, was beautiful. It was covered with drawings Maya and her siblings made in their spare time. The littlest of them was called Alex. He was only four years old, but already he was a great artist. He drew pictures of bananas with faces. Even when he tried to draw people, their bodies always looked like bananas. He neither loved nor hated the fruits that his life depended on. They were simply all he knew. He had an imaginary friend named Banana Sam that was a yellow dolphin with a nose that looked like a stem. Maya and her siblings would wait the whole day for their mother to come home because she would have dinner, but also because they loved her. Despite her exhaustion from the day's work, their mother always told them fairy tales when she got home. They'd gather on one bed, all stacked and smushed together. Jolie would sit on Marta's lap, who'd in turn be sitting on Maya's lap. Their mother held Alex as she looked up at the night sky through the holes in the roof. Maybe the stories came from there, shot down from the stars, trickling through the holes and landing in their mother's head. Of course, story time hadn't happened for three days because their mother had not come home. They'd had seven bananas in the food bin they kept by the door, but those had only lasted an hour. 
Four mouths is a lot to feed. Maya and her siblings felt tired from hunger. For the thousandth time, Alex pulled Maya's ear and whispered that he was hungry. Just then, someone knocked on the door. Postman, the voice said before footsteps shuffled away. Maya opened the door and a crumpled piece of paper was resting there in the dirt. Carefully unfolding it, she read, To whomever it may concern, we are writing to inform you that Miss Selma Malaron will not be returning to your place of residence. She has been discharged from her current position as a result of her attempted thievery and is currently in our custody, but do not worry. She is in very good hands, and she has been given everything she needs. We are sustaining her with bread, and we are in the process of showing her that stealing benefits no one. She will remain in our care until further notice. We hope this turn of events does not inconvenience you. If you would like, you may send a representative to fill Miss Malaron's empty position. Sincerely, the company. Maya's eyes scrolled to the bottom of the page where a Bible verse had been stamped. Psalm 128, 2. You will eat the fruit of your labor. Blessings and prosperity will be yours. The next day, Maya went to ask the company for work. She did not have a choice. There were no other jobs. Well, actually there were, but Maya's mother had taught her you needed special documents to get those jobs. It was such a lavish-sounding word, documents. Wasn't a document just a fancy word for a piece of paper? Maya's mother had never told her what made those pieces of paper more special than other ones. Perhaps they were made of gold or embroidered with rare ink. Regardless, she didn't have them, and she didn't know how to get them. Sighing, Maya strapped her mother's old picking step stool to her back and walked to the banana fields. At the end of the day, she was so tired she had to rest twice on her walk home, even though it was less than a mile. Clutched tightly in her fist were her daily earnings, a sweat-drenched $10 bill. The bill didn't quite look right to her. The coloring looked a little off, and it was a little smaller than a $10 bill should be. Still, she tried her luck at Cujo's Market. But when she asked to buy a loaf of bread, Cujo flattened the bill against the metal counter, held it up to the light, and then sighing, took out a small blue lighter and lit the bill on fire. Maya let this happen. Perhaps lighting the money on fire was just another test of its legitimacy. Surely Cujo would extinguish the flame after he learned that, yes, it burned bright red or royal blue or green or whatever color signified that her money was, in fact, real. But by the time the flame had eaten a third of the way into the $10 bill, Maya understood that Cujo was simply destroying it. I'm sorry, Maya, he said. 
I wish I didn't have to do this, but last month the company threatened my family. My income is on probation. They take 40% as it is, and if they catch me accepting fake money, well, he trailed off. You didn't have to burn it. I could have tried it somewhere else. I have to feed my siblings, Maya said. If they caught you using that money, they'd send you to the room no one ever comes back from, or worse, said Cujo. It was the company that gave me this money in the first place, she yelled. Cujo sighed. I don't know what to tell you, Maya. I'm sorry. He did look sorry, and she couldn't blame him. He was looking out for his family, just like she was trying to do. But still, she was starving. Her sisters were starving. Little Alex was starving. He was skin and bones. His belly was beginning to swell. She feared that if he fell down, his arms would snap in two. Not knowing what else to do, Maya went back to work the next day. The work was hard and the air was clogged with smoke from the factory. Bushel by bushel, she brought the bananas to large machines that made a noise like a fork scraping a sheet of old metal. There were large teeth on one side of the machine and a giant glass bowl on the other side. The bananas were pulverized and spit out into the bowl. The resulting mush then rode a conveyor belt to some unknown part of the factory. Usually the mush was yellow or brown, but sometimes there'd be flecks of red. It was probably just rust. Except one time, it wasn't rust. She knew this because she saw a man's fingers get too close to the teeth and she saw his eyes go wide and she saw him bite his tongue in order to keep from screaming. If security heard, they'd take him away. Instead, she watched as he hobbled back through the fields to grab the next bushel of bananas, his fingerless hand wrapped beneath his shirt. Droplets of blood trailed behind him like breadcrumbs but the droplets wouldn't help him find his way back. No one who worked there needed a reminder of how to navigate their assigned row. However, the trail was useful to the security guards, who Maya saw sniffing the air. Could they smell blood? No. Fear. They could smell fear. The man knew this, for now he was crying. The guards approached him, and still he didn't scream. He just dropped the bananas he had been attempting to carry with one hand and curled in a ball on the ground, awaiting his fate. He seemed to shrink in his mixture of fear and despair. Only one guard was needed to carry him off. Maya cried silently for him. During that month of work, she cried twice. The first time was for the man whose hand had been caught in the machine. But the second time was for a woman who wore a black scarf across her face, leaving only a small slit for her eyes. But even those were covered by thick black lens goggles. Many workers wore similar coverings. They gave some protection from the machine smoke. Maya's eyes often watered, but she couldn't afford goggles. The woman with the covered face was an exceptional worker. 
She moved between the fields and machines like a robot, always at a clip, never stopping more than twice a day for water. And because she shared a row with Maya, they often had to scoot past each other. Once Maya didn't see the woman approaching and so wasn't able to move out of the way. The woman did not ask Maya to move. Instead, she kept walking as if there was no one there to block her way and then wordlessly shoved Maya's step stool out of the way. Maya fell. The damage was not serious, but the fall was quite painful, and the woman didn't turn to look back, didn't slow down, she just kept walking at her robotic pace. Maya told her siblings about the woman, and they made up scary stories about who she really was. Jolie thought she was actually a robot sent to secretly spy on the workers. Marta thought that she wasn't a robot or a human, but rather a mist-filled phantom. If you ever get a chance to snatch those goggles from her face, you'll see, she said. Obviously, they are just covering two little holes, and once you take them off, the smoke will come out and she'll deflate. She's not a robot or a balloon, Maya said. She's just a woman who does her work and asks no questions. Little Alex was painfully thin, but his cheeks were returning to their hazelnut color. Still, with her current pay, he would never really be healthy. The company only paid her with real money about half the time. Marta and Jolie would have to start working soon. The day Maya cried for the woman with the covered face began like any other day. She picked bananas. She moved her step stool from tree to tree. She brought bushels to the machine. The woman has always moved like an automaton, each step precisely the size of the step before. When she dropped her bushels into the machine, she wasted no movement. Everything was done with perfect precision. But then something happened that the woman did not expect. On her way down the row, a single banana fell from her crate and hit the ground, thumping inaudibly amid the hustle and bustle of the machine. There was a moment, a slight hiccup in the woman's gait, indicating that maybe she did notice something, but she continued anyway. For her, a mistake was out of the question, and it was for this reason that upon returning through the row, she stepped on the banana, its inside sliding, deforming under the weight of her foot. For a moment it looked like she would regain her balance, but then the peel which had been up to that point doing a good job of holding its contents ripped, and the woman's feet kicked upward, her shoulders back, her hands behind, her neck taut, and smack she hit the ground. Maya rushed over to see if she was okay, and the woman groaned softly, or perhaps gurgled is more suitable a word. The noise that came from her sounded like someone choking on liquid. If the woman had just taken a water break, perhaps she was choking on a liquid, in which case Maya had to help her. The impact had caused her goggles to settle on her forehead. Maya, for the first time, saw what was beneath 
There were no holes, no phantom smoke, no metallic android parts. What lay beneath the goggles were eyes, human eyes, the color of butterscotch and chocolate. They were kind, but lost, like two coconuts resting in the sand on an island far away. Before the woman could speak, Maya pulled back the scarf covering the rest of the woman's face to see if she was choking. And what she saw beneath the scarf made her cry, harder than she had cried for the man with the mangled hand, harder than she had cried for Alex's malnourished body, harder perhaps than she had ever cried. She saw a mouth, but not a normal mouth for it was laced with waxy black thread, pulled tight and knotted at the corners. The woman could not protest. Her mouth was sewn shut. The covering had also obscured the entirety of the woman's neck, but now Maya could see there was something hidden there as well. A small square box was sewn into the nape of her neck. There was a little screen in the center of the box, and a yellow tab attached to the side that read, For use instructions, pull this tab. So Maya pulled, and a slot opened up on the side of the box, revealing a small laminated scroll. Meanwhile, the woman, still unresponsive, began to shake violently. Still, Maya was able to make out the wording in the laminated scroll. It read, Thank you for purchasing the Worker Jet 5000. You are well on your way to super boosting employee efficiency. To use, simply 1. Sew the box onto slash into the lucky employee. 2. Use the up and down arrows beside the screen to choose a minimum acceptable level of efficiency. And 3. Press the big red button. The Worker Jet 5000 uses state of the art incentivator trademark technology. The device works much like an air conditioner. Should the employee's output fall below the minimum acceptable level, they will be given a shockwave of incentive. If the employee makes an unappealing noise after receiving an incentive, we have provided a spool of Tough Tech trademark wax-coated thread that can be used to prevent future sound emission. We would like to thank you again for choosing the WorkerJet 5000. By providing a tool for employee success, we can not only increase productivity, but also workplace morale. Good luck, and remember, work, work, life, love, work. There was a room, a very bad room, hidden in the depths of the factory, and there was a sign above the room that read, no one ever comes back from here. The words had been painted gold. It was true, but it was also a lie. They came back. At least their bodies came back. Everything else, though, did not. Maya's tears were uncontrollable now. She saw and felt the body before her convulse with each shockwave of incentive. 
This woman, whose eyes were now lolling about in her head, was most likely a slave, even before they had implanted this device. But now she was less. For all Maya knew, this woman was not ever allowed to stop working, for she was always the last one left at the end of the day and the first one there at the beginning. It was entirely possible that she just never went home, forced to walk the rows all night. Did she even have a home? Yes. Yes, she did. Maya knew this because Maya knew the woman. She looked different now, but it was unmistakable. Maya remembered sitting on her lap, feeling safe and love, and she remembered a million other moments. This woman, this sad, broken woman, whose voice, whose life had been taken and replaced, was her mother. What were the odds her mother would be placed in the same row? Did the company know? Had they done this on purpose? A sick joke played by tall, balding men in black suits who laughed at their own clever sense of irony. Say, Joe, maybe we should put the mother right next to her daughter. They'll never know. Maya looked around at all the other workers. So many of them had faces covered with black scars and goggles, and now she was scared, so, so scared. And then she could feel them sniffing the air, those big men who could smell fear. They had just caught a whiff and were prowling. Despite her fear, Maya had more important things to worry about. The device had to be removed before the shocks of incentive overwhelmed her mother's now sparsely beating heart. But then the guards were upon them. She saw terror in their faces. It made her angry. What right did they have to be afraid? But then she saw it, the outline of a little black box protruding from beneath the uniform of the guard closest to her. The other guards had them too, and although the boxes were hidden beneath the thermal webbing of their shirts, they had clearly been sewn into the skin. The boxes had always been visible, but she hadn't noticed them. They hadn't meant anything before now. It was awful. It was all unfair. She wanted so badly to blame them. She wanted them to be the easy and unquestionable target of her hatred. Why couldn't they have just been evil? Her fury was wild. But not knowing where to direct it, she let it sink back into her skin and constrict around her own heart. Still, these men were agents of the company, and forced to do it or not, they were the ones who lifted Maya upon their shoulders and hauled her off, away from her mother who was still buzzing with electric incentive on the ground. I would like to tell you that when this story ends, the company falls. I want to tell you that after being taken to the room no one ever comes back from, 
Maya escapes, free of not only the worker Jet 5000, but also just free for the first time in her life. But would you really believe me? A lie can do little, and a weak lie can do nothing. And I don't want to lie, because I want you to know what really happens to Maya in the end. I want you to picture her mouth as it's sewn shut, the needle poking through her lip. I want you to imagine that upon clicking the big red button, Maya wakes up in her refurbished body and shocked with incentive gets to work. I will not be the black scarf hiding the truth to preserve ignorance because that is not how things change. This story was hard to write because it was hard to think about. As I was writing, these images kept showing up in my head of these workers and the terrible conditions that they're put through. And although in this story, the conditions are not entirely realistic, the real conditions are almost worse. These migrant workers, they have no choice but to do these things. Many of them came from Mexico or from other countries because they had to. They had no choice. Their families were starving and they needed to make money. It's terrible how the world works that way. Money seems to rule all sometimes. If you'd like to help out in the description for this episode, I'll put a link to... Um, an awesome uh, charity that helps out with a lot of these migrant workers and fights for their rights and um, also gives them opportunities and housing. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions, you can email me at uh, eric.josh.grossman at gmail.com. That's it. I'll be back with another episode when I can. Thank you.